Hello, I'm Neil Aitchison and welcome to the Willet Warwick podcast. You join me at the third British Shakespeare Association conference at the University of Warwick. And the subject of this podcast from the conference is editing Shakespeare. And I'm joined by one of the most eminent editors of Shakespeare's work at Stanley Wells, who was general editor of the Oxford Shakespeare, perhaps one of the most important, if not the most important editions of Shakespeare's work. Stanley, perhaps you can just explain what you were trying to do uh, editing uh, Oxford Shakespeare. Yes, certainly. Oxford approached me in the 1970s about a new edition of Shakespeare. They'd been trying for a long time to get one. It's understandable that one of the major university presses should wish to have uh, an, an edition of the complete works. And the one they had on their books then had first been edited in 1891, which was rather a long time ago. And a lot had happened in Shakespeare studies since then, uh, and in knowledge of Shakespeare's text and in the treatment of Shakespeare's text. And normally, this sort of edition has tended to be done by people from a university position. Uh, and this, frankly, is why Oxford had failed to get one for so long, because they'd relied on scholars who were trying to do other work at the same time as doing the edition. So they had the bright idea of inviting me to join the press uh, as a full-time employee of the press to edit the complete works of Shakespeare. So I, I re- resigned from my position in the university as reader of English at the Shakespeare Institute and the University of Birmingham, And I joined Oxford and started the Shakespeare department of Oxford University Press. While I was at Oxford, I didn't entirely give up my teaching activities. I was a research fellow at Balliol College, for example. But fundamentally, what I was doing was editing and organising the editing of a new edition of the complete works. I had colleagues on this. Uh, Gary Taylor joined me after a few months as an assistant editor and eventually rose to be joint general editor with me. He developed very rapidly during the time he was with me uh, and is now one of the most eminent uh, of editorial and textual scholars. And other people also were employed to assist in this. Uh, We took um, seven or eight years to to do the edition Uh, I was determined from the start that it wouldn't just be duplicating other editions. I found often when I was in Oxford that people would say, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing a new edition of Shakespeare. You know, that typical Oxford way, the brow would go up and the lip, the upper lip would curl, and they'd say, oh, yes, is it going to be any different from any other edition of Shakespeare? Well, when it turned out, in in the end, it was very different from other editions of Shakespeare, because I felt it wasn't worth devoting years of my life to just reduplicating everything that had been done before. I felt that Shakespeare needed to be edited from the ground upwards. And there are various ways in which it was possible to do that. One was seriously examining, for the first time, the principles by which we modernise the presentation of Shakespeare. By modernise, I mean that before that all Shakespeare, modern Shakespeare editions are printed all in modern spelling and with modern punctuation. And too often that process had been left to the printers rather than, the, than given serious consideration by the scholars. So in fact, I, first, I spent the first three or four months of my employment for the press writing a, a long essay on modernising Shakespeare's spelling, which was, I think it's fair to claim, the first serious scholarly treatment that that topic had ever had. Uh, it was published as an independent uh, monograph. Uh, But there are many other ways in which I wanted to look afresh at Shakespeare. Uh, One was in the presentation of the plays as works for the theatre. 
I think there'd been too much emphasis in the past on reading Shakespeare. Now, of course, a complete works is there to be read, but at the same time, uh, the, one is editing plays that were originally written purely to be acted. I mean, Shakespeare was not particularly interested in his own time in the printing of his plays. They were done by printers, some of them, only about half of them were done in, in print in Shakespeare's own lifetime. Uh, and because for him, it seems to me, uh, Performance was what mattered. Performance was the publication. There was the way in which his texts were, were published. And he wasn't too much concerned about printing them. And partly for that reason, the way that he wrote the plays uh, included minimal stage directions. Uh, he knew he was, a, he was an actor himself. He was a man of the theatre. He was a shareholder in the company for which the plays were, by which the plays were performed. He knew that he wasn't just going to send the plays off by post to London to be acted. He was going to be embroiled in it all, all the time. And so he'd be able to tell the actors what he wanted and what he wanted them to do. So although there are stage directions in the plays, they're pretty minimal. And we have to work to sort them out sometimes, to sort out uh, where, where he himself was too vague, as he sometimes was very vague. I mean, there are even plays in which he doesn't specify which characters should speak particular lines. And also, there are exits that are not provided, or entrances that are not provided. So you've got to think about that. And we wanted to think afresh about it. Too many of the Previous editions were relying on Victorian stage conventions, on the idea that every scene in a play takes place in a particularised locality, for example, whereas we were very much wedded to the idea that the plays are works for the stage, not works in which uh, you, you get fictional locations like another part of the forest and that sort of thing. So we abandoned that sort of direction. Uh, we also had some, uh, we, we were working at a time when there was a radical revolution in Shakespeare, textual scholarship, uh, in which it, it was um, posited that Shakespeare revised some of his plays. And to cut a long story short, that's why, for example, in the Oxford Complete Works, you'll find two separate texts of King Lear, because we feel that that play is represented in the first text, the quarto, as Shakespeare first conceived it, and in the folio text printed in 1623, uh, as it was later adapted uh, by people, including no doubt himself, for the company, and that they, the revisions are so considerable that they amount to two separate plays. So we, this was one of the areas in which people, when they saw the edition, eventually got a surprise. There were other ways in which they were surprised too. For example, in Henry IV, Part One, we know, it's been known for centuries, that the character known as Sir John Falstaff was originally called Sir John Oldcastle in that play. And we had the audacity to print the name Oldcastle rather than Falstaff in Henry IV, Part One, and some people were very shocked by that. Uh, my own feeling was that although certain Certainly Shakespeare countenanced the change to Falstaff. It was reasonable for us to give people the, the chance of reading the play as he first conceived it, and so that's how it's printed. And what were you trying to do in, uh, in editing Shakespeare in that way? Were you sort of conscious of uh, uh, making a reinterpretation of Shakespeare? We were, we were trying very hard to get back to a modern presentation of the texts as they were acted in Shakespeare's time, and in a way that would enable a modern reader to get a sense of the play in performance, and specifically in Elizabethan performance. I say in Elizabethan performance because one has to think of the plays 
written for the theatres of Shakespeare's time, uh, a, a theatre without scenery, so that, as I say, when we have a stage direction, we don't say that this scene takes place in the castle because it takes place on a stage. And Shakespeare sometimes actually writes scenes which start in one location and then move over to another location. Uh, so we were trying to get away from edited texts which, which were based on Victorian, usually, traditions of staging, or pictorial staging at least, and trying to get, give people a sense of how the play might have struck them if they'd seen it in Shakespeare's own theatre. And it was hugely uh, influential. Why, why do you think that was? Well, it's been an influential edition because it, it affected a rethinking uh, of Shakespeare's texts. Uh, not everybody liked what we did. In some ways, you know, people resist innovation, uh, and um, not everybody approves of all the decisions that we made. A rethinking by uh, turning back to looking at as a, an acting uh, performance and, and putting it in a, an Elizabethan setting. Yes, a willingness to not just to accept uh, what had been done generation upon generation. You see, one extraordinary thing is that until we edited our edition, almost every edition, I can only think of one of which this is not true, and that's an 18th century one, had been prepared not by going back to the original texts, but by re-editing an earlier edition. That's true from the 18th century onwards, and it's, it's, it's true even today, that editions of the complete works are often revisions of earlier editions. We, in fact, went back to the original quarters and the folio, and we had printouts made of those texts, literatim, letter by letter, punctuation mark by punctuation mark. And so we were starting afresh in that sense of the word. We weren't just repeating what other people had done with, with titivations to it. That was, that was certainly one very radical thing that, that we did in the edition. And why is Shakespeare constantly re-edited then? Well, he's constantly re-edited partly because... Um, Discoveries are made, uh, just occasionally somebody finds... Well, to give you one small example, uh, the first edition of Titus Andronicus was only discovered in 1904. The last four lines of that play are different from the second edition, which would not have been known before then, so that any editions printed before then, including the one that was in print from Oxford, the 1891, gave you a false impression of, of the ending of that play. Um, they're, they're edited also, they're re-edited partly because we get used to new and different systems of punctuation. I mean, if you read uh, Victorian novels, for example, or editions or scholarly works, you'll find that the, uh, the punctuation in those editions tend to be very much heavier than we're accustomed to nowadays. And that sort of thing had been accepted too easily, I think, by, by generations of editors. It's a matter of, of, of creating a text which is, as far as possible, um, acceptable in modern terms to the readers that you're thinking of. Of course, editing Shakespeare doesn't only mean editing the text. It also means providing explanations of the text, providing glossarial notes. Now, I'm also the editor of both the, the Penguin edition of Shakespeare, uh, and which is, which is a volume-by-volume volume edition, and also of the Oxford multi-volume edition, where we do or every play is done separately. And there, one is... In editions like those, one is trying to help readers to understand the texts by annotation, by explanation of difficult words, by paraphrasing difficult language, 
by explaining, for example, things like uh, biblical allusions or classical allusions. Now, there again, the needs of each generation are different. I mean, if you'd been doing this in the Victorian period, you'd have been doing it at a time when people studied uh, the classics far more than they do now, and when people knew the Bible far more than they're likely to do now. So in that period, you, you'd have had more, you'd have had less need for, for notes on certain things that are now needed for the modern reader, the modern student or general reader. Also, um, I think it's fair to say that in the last 40 or 50 years, people have been far more inclined than they were previously to think of Shakespeare as a practical dramatist and to think of the plays not as texts primarily for reading, but as texts for acting, for putting on in the theatre. And so, uh, well, when I'm editing a play now, I will be thinking very much about how it would be acted, about options for performance, about different ways in which it might be acted, not just uh, deciding what it means from my point of view, but by saying to a reader, look, you could interpret this line in different ways. And uh, sometimes in, in doing this, I will draw on my own experience of the play in the theatre and remember, well, for example, the end of King Lear. Lear's last words in the folio text are, look there, look there. It's often been supposed that he's looking into Cordelia's eyes, his dead daughter's eyes, uh, and uh, seeing whether there are any signs of life. But when Robert Stevens did the play with Adrian Noble directing at Stratford, he wasn't looking into Cordelia's eyes. He was, as Adrian said to me, having a sort of vision. And he, when, look, when he said, look there, he wasn't looking into the eyes, he was looking upwards as if he was looking at her spirit departing into the heavens. That's the sort of thing that you feel may make a difference to the theatrical experience and that you think readers may be interested to know about and they may find illumination in knowing about that sort of thing. So this an idea of a sacrosanct text yeah. then it is a complete folly really? It is. It? There is no such thing as a definitive edition of Shakespeare. Publishers like to say this is the definitive edition. I resisted that at every step and for bad Oxford, as far as I could, they were my bosses after all, from, an, from announcing that this was the new definitive edition of Shakespeare. Shakespeare Shakespearean texts have to be re-edited every, every so often, every generation. And uh, they fit uh, in with their time. They fit in with their time. And I once compared it to a coral reef. Um, where you get layer upon layer and sometimes you've got to come along and chip the layers off in order to get what's underneath it and that was one of the things we were doing with the Oxford Shakespeare. How do you make a decision like that to be changing uh, the words of such a great figure as Well, uh, well it's not normally changing the words of the text. Uh, I mean it's true that sometimes, well for example uh, in Othello Iago is often referred to in the early texts as ancient Iago. Now, ancient was simply an old spelling form of the modern word ensign, the, the military rank of ensign. Now, a lot of people had retained the old spelling just out of tradition, really, and I changed it to ensign Iago. Uh, that's not, I think, changing Shakespeare's meaning. It's only changing the the, the spelling of the word rather than the form of the word. We weren't modernising the text in the sense of changing you to, changing thy to your, for example, or thee to you or anything like that. I resisted that very, very much. Uh, but we were trying to present the text in ways which would be as intelligible as possible to, to, a, to a modern readership without any sort of distortion of the meaning. Of course, any serious editor will have to make decisions sometimes about mistakes. 
I mean, the early printings of Shakespeare's plays, some of them are riddled with, with error, and uh, different editors will have different ideas about how to correct those errors, often based, for example, on a knowledge of Elizabethan handwriting. It's often possible to say, well, we know that this letter could easily be mistaken for this other letter, two or three minims, as we call them, single strokes, I in in modern one spelling and so on, or E could be mistaken for I, and you might, for that reason, get a different interpretation of an error, and, and new editors would have new ideas about it. So that there are there are substantive differences from one edition to another, but if they're being responsibly edited, those decisions are, are made on the basis of knowledge about Shakespeare's language, about the, the spelling, the, the spelling habits of the time and other matters, and uh, so you, you could make certain alterations in a scholarly way within defined parameters. And what do you hope is the overall effect of all that then, to continue to breathe life into the internet? Yes, one hopes that one is providing texts which um, the actors will be able to use, which people will benefit from reading. One of my regrets about the Oxford Complete Works is that because it's a complete works, it's not often used in the theatre. We were, we were editing for the theatre, but of course in the theatre you don't want to be carrying around a 1,600-page book. You want to something like a Penguin <laughs> edition, which you can put in your pocket and where you can scribble notes in, in the margins. And I do sometimes regret that our edition has not been made available in, uh, in pocket-sized editions of, of that nature. I think it's, uh, it's made people think afresh. One of the reviewers had a, an interesting comment. It was John Bailey, I think, Harris Murdoch's husband, who said something like that reading the Oxford Shakespeare was like having a series of little pinpricks uh, constantly uh, made on your skin as you read it, that there were new, new little nuances here and there which kept you alert to... Uh, to the possibilities of variation in the text. I mean, one little thing, for example, now that I, the uh, thing that hasn't gone down well with a lot of people in the in the in as you like it, the action takes place in the forest of Arden. Now, I believe that Arden there it really means the Ardennes, the Ardennes area of of the continent of Europe, of Belgium and France. And so I print Ardennes in that edition. There are many other references to France in that, in that text. And uh, I wanted to give people a sense that it wasn't the Warwickshire Ardennes so much as uh, a setting, a foreign setting. And Shakespeare, after all, often does use foreign settings. Well, that's a little pinprick that some people have, well, it's drawn blood with some people. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not, I don't regret it. Well, long may you draw blood uh, all round uh, to, to come, uh, yeah, Stanley Wells. Many thanks.